0: I continue with my meditation regarding how to live a resilient life, how to live a life that um, overcomes crises, like the one that we are just uh, sort of in, in process of finishing this COVID situation. And I believe that we have navigated it very well as a congregation, by the way. I think we are stronger than ever. We have been tested by the fire. And you, people of God, you have done well. You have done well by your attendance. You have done well by your commitment to the kingdom, your commitment to your congregation. You have continued to serve the Lord. You have continued to come corporately, uh, uh, and uh, despite all our fears, we have persisted. And I think we are stronger because we know God better now, and we know that He is faithful when we trust in Him. So praise the Lord. You are an example, I think, of a resilient community, and I thank the Lord for you and for the encouragement that I have received from watching you go through this journey. And um, this is about a man uh, I want to speak about again, about a resilient human being who um, is going, as uh, he is pictured here in First Kings chapter 19, is going through a terrible crisis in his life. Uh, the most, probably the, the most difficult crisis in his entire life. Uh, this is the prophet Elijah. And in, in observing his journey through this crisis, in his life, we can learn some things about how we ourselves, because after all, that's what what the Bible registers, these events, uh, is because God wants us to learn. These are case studies that we can extract from them, teachings that serve us in our own similar journeys in life. And so in 1 Kings chapter 19, we see the prophet Elijah, and by the way, the notes are available in the um, website, again, I thank God that he allowed me to, in time, you know, put these notes. And they're available in, in our website, lionofjuda.org, under Sermon Notes. You will see this uh, passage, uh, you know, some of the quick, hurried uh, notes that I took um, to prepare for this, uh, the study of this passage. So I want to speak about the God who is always active and in control. The God who is always active and in control And so in 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, it says uh, the following, beginning with verse um, 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel, these are two demonized, demonic uh, monarchs who are ruling Israel at that time. And Elijah has been in conflict with them. Elijah has just uh, killed 400 of uh, um, Jezebel's false Prophets and she is incensed and absolutely angry with him. So, when Ahab tells Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, if I don't kill you. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. This is a story about fear. Uh, fear that overcomes we, uh, our, ourselves. Fear that uh, freezes and paralyzes us. Fear that overcomes our capacity to reason. Fear that occupies every part of our being and leads us to flee and to hide, even when we are not given to flee or to hide. He ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. He isolated himself. He, he, depressed, fearful people often want to isolate, want to flee, want to escape the situation that they are facing and just face it alone. And that is a danger. Remember that we have said that if we want to live resilient lives, we need allies. We need community. We need people that we trust, that we need to share what we are experiencing with others. We need, to feel, we need to hear counsel. We need to pray together. We need to force ourselves to stay in community because in aloneness, we are easy prey for the enemy. Elijah doesn't do that. Elijah leaves his community behind and he flees to the desert. He leaves his faithful servant behind. He just goes into the desert and engages in a huge pity party. Um, While he himself was a day's journey into the wilderness, he's deep into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, kind of a tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. A classic symptom of a deep depression. You want to die. You want to just give up and get it over with. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him. God was there. God was in the middle of his crisis, there to minister to Elijah. An angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals. You know, a little... Thought just uh, I, I wonder why God had to have a you know fire and, and uh, coals to bake. Why didn't He just make it you know appear like in Star Trek? Boom, reproduce. Uh, it, it's something about God. You know He's He's real. God is um, He wants to be graphic here. It's how God interacts. Even as He works miraculously, He also works through time, space, matter, circumstances. So this angel did the angel bake. The, the bread, I don't know, or maybe it was just there for, you know, to strengthen Elijah's faith as a symbol of God's provision. It's like a mother really preparing a dish for a chicken soup for a sick child. So I, I believe that God is so detail-oriented. He's so precious in his uh, careful ministrations to our life. So this angel takes this bread over hot coals and brings him a jar of water. And Elijah ate and drank and then lay down again. This guy was exhausted. This man was emotionally depleted, and he needed sleep. Have you ever been in that situation where all you want to do is just go to sleep? And and, uh, sometimes, you know, you've you've had a bad experience, and you go to bed, and then you get up, and you've you've slept 10 hours, but you still need to sleep some more. And you want to just treat yourself. You want to gorge on sleep And you go back and you sleep for another 8 or 10 hours, and that restores you. Well, Elijah was in that kind of situation. This is a man who has just had a horrible confrontation with hundreds of uh, false prophets. He has been under national scrutiny, and he has been used to take the life of hundreds of men. And he has overseen or himself executed this deed. So you can imagine how he must have felt. Even though there was a great victory, I think his emotional system, his nervous system was just drained, and he needed to relax. There's a lesson there. He needed to take some time off. And I think God was involved even in that fleeing, knowing that this man needed some rest. By the way, psychologists and psychiatrists will tell you that sometimes after the great triumphs of life and the great successes, it is the time when we can become most depressed. Sometimes the moments of great uh, success after great stress are the moments also that are ripe for emotional crises. Um, it, It just happens that way, you know? And so Elijah has had one of the great victories of his ministry, and yet here he is, completely depressed and full of fear. Now, and God is ministering to him. And uh, he, uh, he lay down, fell asleep, and then lay down again. And then, verse 7 the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. You see the, the careful, detail oriented, tender God that Elijah needs to see and experience. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights. I'd love to have some of the vitamins in that bread that Elijah ate. Until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Any, anybody else know? Do you know anybody else who found God, had a great encounter with God in Mount Horeb? Anybody? Moses. Moses, so this mountain had a very special quality about it, like Bethel, for example, which is another holy place where God had encounters with His servants. There, He went into a cave and spent the night. By the way, there's a symbolism about a cave um, that uh, it would be good for us to always keep in mind. The cave, I mean, it, Jung and Freud had a lot to talk about, you know, that, that, that symbolism. A cave is a womb. A cave is a place of... Um, uh, birth. A cave is a place of encounter. A cave is a, is a refuge. It's a place for new beginnings, new births, new understandings. And I think that this cave has an element of that here. There's a psychological um, value to the fact that it is in this cave that God uh, speaks to um, Elijah in a definitive, revelational sort of way. He went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? As we should be asked ourselves, and we're going through difficult times in our lives, what am I doing? That what are you doing here is not like, why are you here? No, it's more like, why are you here? It is a, it is a purposeful question, I believe. Why are you here? What are you doing here, Elijah. It is the question of a psychiatrist asking a patient, why are you acting this way and what can you learn from it? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. Elijah is all of a sudden submitted to a metaphor, a living metaphor, a living drama that God wants him to experience. And this is it. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the the fire. When you have that kind of dramatic repetition, there's a lesson that God wants you to learn in us. When Elijah and, and this is after after the fire came a gentle whisper, total contrast to the other three manifestations. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, and he must have done it with a kind of a smile in his face, in a way, and and a a kind of a, a look of understanding if he could have seen him. Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus, that is Syria. When you get there, Anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Three domains, Syria, Israel, and Elijah's own ministry, where God is sovereign and where God exercises full authority and full agency. And Elijah is going to be the agent of God's power and influence. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Last week, uh, we examined uh, the, the tragic uh, moment in the life of uh, King David with the, the death of his newborn son. You remember, it is a time of extraordinary crisis for David. He has experienced catastrophic moral failure. God has punished him severely. And despite his desperate prayers, his son is taken from him by God. But instead of falling into despair and rejecting God, David bounces back and embraces life. You remember, you know, after, after clamoring for the life of his son, he realizes his son is dead. There's nothing else to do. He gets up from the ground where he's been for seven days, he bathes, he showers, he takes care of himself, he he puts on clean clothing, goes to the temple and worships God, and we said this is a very graphic action on his part. He's kissing the hand that has struck him very severely, and then goes to his wife, makes love to his wife, and out of that encounter, Solomon is born, beloved of God, a great king, an extraordinary figure that maybe his son, the one that died, would probably not have been. But God gives him such a huge consolation prize. And um, David joins life again. And, and as I said, this, this is the perfect image of resiliency or resilience. When you go through a challenging time, and instead of, you know, uh, sort of imploding, you, you will reemerge stronger, renewed, And instead of being defeated and deformed by a negative experience, you come out actually, you know, rejuvenated and more powerful and more careful as you walk the spiritual walk. Now, today we experience another great man who falls into a huge crisis as well. This is Elijah. We mentioned him uh, last week briefly. It's interesting. James uh, 5.17 Hundreds of years after this encounter of Elijah, James, uh, the Apostle James speaks about Elijah and says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's saying, you know, Elijah was no superhero. Even though God did extraordinary miracles through him, he was a man who had the same nervous system as you and I, just as all the servants of God. Never lionized, never sort of uh, put on a pedestal. Any man or woman who serves the Lord, we are all made of the same stuff. We are all dealing with the same nervous system. We are all dealing with the same temptations, the same weaknesses, the same systemic proclivity to fail under stress. And um, James is saying, you know, this man who, who God used to even affect the weather of a nation... It was a man just like anybody else, and he's alluding to this moment of implosion where Elijah falls apart under great stress. And that's a good lesson to remember. You know, what what makes Elijah's experience uh, so noteworthy is the fact that here we have a man who seems bulletproof. This man seems uh, impenetrable. Incapable of experiencing fear, depression, or self-doubt. Imagine fighting against a a kingdom, fighting against two demonized individuals who have all the power, political, military, police-oriented, to destroy your life. And you stand, and over and over again, you put all kinds of pressure on that government because you have the power, but your life is exposed as well. And Elijah has done this over and over again. This is a man who God does extraordinary miracles through. He is ever before God. I say this, as I say, you know, he speaks about, I say this uh, before the God before whom I stand. He says that over and over again. So you you would think that this man, uh, you know, is impenetrable. He was anything but uh, delicate or sensitive or giving to running from danger. And this is why his experience is so eloquent and so uh, illuminating for us. It is also why it is so rich and full of spiritual and practical lessons. Jezebel is absolutely irate at the fact that Elijah, Elijah himself has overseen. And I don't think the Bible is totally clear on this. But it suggests that Elijah himself cut the head of many of these men. I don't know that he could have done with several hundred. He probably oversaw a massacre. Imagine that. What kind of steel-like personality is required for you to oversee the execution of 400, several hundred men, fathers, brothers, um, being killed, and you are responsible for that? What kind of uh, you know, uh, strength would be required to do that? And yet, this man, upon the threat of uh, Jezebel, whom he knows well, all of a sudden, he's possessed of, a, of a, an overcoming fear and flees and runs away. I, I've always believed that there was something supernatural about that fear that Elijah experienced. It wasn't just a natural fear. We might think of Peter, who also was very sure of himself and very successful in his own ministry. And he felt on top of the world. He said, even though all these other disciples fail you, I will never abandon you. And the Lord looked at him with a smile and said, hey, Peter, you don't realize it, but before the, the, the night is over, you will deny me not once, not twice, but three times. So don't be so haughty and so sure of yourself. And, and there was a drama that was going on in that moment because the Lord says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed that your faith would not falter. Peter himself was involved in a drama, uh, guided by God. And the fear that he experienced himself, I don't think was a, the natural fear, because Peter was a man who had just got off the ear of somebody with a sword when, when they were trying to uh, arrest Jesus. And all of a sudden, he implodes when this uh, meek uh, um, servant, woman, uh, threatens to tell on him that he was a follower of Jesus, and he's inspired with terror. And so I think that God sometimes, you know, brings us and engineers, in his own sovereign way, psychodramas to teach us things, to prepare us, to break us, to shape us, to show us that we're not, uh, in Spanish we say, the last Coca-Cola in the desert. And, uh, you know, God sometimes will do that, and he will, not sometimes, I think God will always work in our lives in mysterious, sometimes sinister, dark sorts of ways. I have learned in the course of my life that God is sinister sometimes. He is loving, He is gracious, He is a Father, He has compassion upon us, but He is also to be, not to be trifled with. And that is one thing that I always say, American Christianity has lost the sight of, the fear of God the reverence for this very, very sublime being. And this is one thing that, by the way, has been renewed through my reading of Scripture in the past few months, through the Bible in one year. In my case, Bible in half a year, because I want to do it again, and I'm on schedule. I'm going to boast about that, to read it twice. And I've been renewed in my understanding. And sometimes we lose sight of this God who will put us through very difficult moments, and he will emerge us in water and when our, you know, we're up to our neck. And he's saying, no, you can still take a little bit more. I want you to learn something. And so um, this fear that Elijah experiences, I think, is a divinely induced fear <clears throat> for a purpose. He wants to illuminate his prophet. Uh, in both cases, both in Peter and uh, Elijah, God himself was involved. He wanted to deal with aspects of the personality of both men. He wanted to prune them and to take them to a new level of maturity and self knowledge and knowledge of God. He wanted to humble them and to better prepare them for future service. In the case of Peter, God wanted to crush Peter's pride and his excessive self confidence, to prepare him to be a true, humble, pastoral servant of Jesus, to make him more aware of his own imperfections, to make him more compassionate. Less prideful, as he did with Paul, by the way, as well. The Bible says that God sent Paul a thorn in the flesh. Paul had had such great revelations, such success in ministry. And in order to preemptively free him from pride, he put a messenger of Satan, is what the Bible says, an angel of Satan, to discipline him to humiliate him, to show him, you are nothing but dust. You have to depend on me. There's no reason for pride in all that I've given you. And you know, it's funny, God does that preemptively many times in our lives. And I've always said that a man of God, a woman of God, and particularly successful servants of the Lord, produce um, brokenness and uh, sin as um, an athlete produces sweat. We are sometimes, uh, you know, pride, rather. Pride is something that is in us. When God blesses us, we always feel pride. And God um, uses uh, His methods to keep us from pride. And if we are wise enough, we will understand that that's what God is doing. Because we produce pride, inevitably. An athlete produces sweat by the very exertion of his action. And, and uh, servants of the Lord, we produce pride just because that's the way our nervous, our human constitution is. And God always administers to us these uh, doses of uh, humility to keep, us our, to keep our pride under control. And so it, both Peter, Paul, Elijah are successful men whom God has given extraordinary revelations to and who are destined for great use. And so God preemptively bleeds them in order to keep them humble, dependent on His grace. God also wanted to bleed Elijah and to make him spiritually stronger by weakening him paradoxically in his flesh, by confronting him with his frail, more human side, like a bull being bled by a matador, by these men who ride these huge horses. Now there's no more bullfighting, I think, in the world. But bullfighting before the matador confronts a bull the, bull, the bull has to be bled and weakened in order to, ironically, make him more dangerous, more calculating. And God sometimes will bleed us in order to make us more willing to listen to him, more humble and less open than to demonic attack. Because pride is the, the biggest instrument that Satan uses to destroy God's servants. And so you, we see Elijah here at the end of his rope. Elijah comes to, to the end. He becomes severely depressed. He is he, tired of ministry and life and just wants to die. He is emotionally depleted and falls into a deep sleep. And this is where God then steps in and takes over and uh, ministers to him. And I think that you know this whole situation is designed, I, I believe, to show what I'm going to very lightly call. Uh, the feminine side of God. Understand me when I say that. God has no feminine or masculine. God is both feminine and masculine. God is not sexual in any way. But there is something about the universe that has both the feminine and the masculine, the aggressive and the, I would say, the receptive. There's no implication of inferiority in saying that. Um, The male and the female, you know, in, in Oriental is uh, called the yin and the yang, these two complementary energies that rule the universe. Well, God has them both, and the universe expresses God's complexity. And, uh, you know, I think Elijah only knew the masculine, aggressive, violent, military side of God. That's all he moved in. That was the energy that his ministry channeled. And now God, God wants to show him the other side, the nurturing, loving, sustaining side, the tender side of God. And so in this very moment when he ministers to Elijah, this food, he is ministering the, 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 the energy of a mother <clears throat> ministering to a child who is weak and uh, depleted. This is the nurturing side of the feminine. And Elijah, I suspect that was not a man who could really receive favors or help from anybody or uh, revel in any signs of weakness. He, he just trudged on in life. He, he just pushed through everything. And God wants to say, no, you need to be ministered to. You need to be fed. You need to feel helpless. You need me to show that I'm a compassionate, loving God. And I want you to see yourself as a weak baby being ministered to because I have that side. I don't just uh, extract product from you. I also feed you. I also minister to you. So receive it. And so he feeds him twice and lays him to sleep twice. So this is the God who wants to be known by Elijah in a a fuller sort of way. He doesn't want Elijah to die or to leave ministry without seeing that God is also a God of uh, the fruit of the Spirit. I think a lot of Pentecostals suffer from this fixation on signs, wonders, power, victory, and we don't understand that one of the most significant ways that we exercise power in the kingdom is through weakness, through the fruit of the Spirit. And this is why many times, uh, many um, Pentecostal ministries, oriented towards signs and wonders, are some of the weakest ministries. Because all we want is just, you know, the, 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 the spectacular, the, the savory, uh, the um, enthusiastic, and all is about the rhetoric of power. But I have learned that the cross has extraordinary power, as we, thre- as we see through Jesus' uh, ministry. And God wants us to know about the cross. God wants us to know about the desert. God wants us to know about the dark night of the soul. He wants us to know about the power that there is in humility, the power that there is in knowing who you are, your limitations, your proclivities to fall, your need for God's ever-constant grace in your life. And your dependency on Him. And the fact that you are disqualified even before you begin. Everything is by grace. And in that understanding, there is huge protection. And there is huge covering. So, we need to live a, live a balanced life. We need to walk in, in the both, always, through life. And, and God, I believe, wants to teach Elijah and us that lesson. So, you know, that's one of the big lessons I think that we can learn. There there are others as well. uh, Here's one. Nothing in the life of a follower of God happens by coincidence or inertia. There's always a reason why God acts in a certain way or why we follow certain circumstances. There's always a purpose. God had a plan in what Elijah was experiencing including his persecution on the part of Jezebel. When Jezebel threatens Elijah with death, it's not just the mouth of Jezebel speaking. God is somewhere behind, like a master puppeteer, using this demo- demonic woman who herself will be hugely judged to, to lead his servant into a greater understanding of who God is and who he is. God is always in, at work. Isn't that what we sang, sang earlier? God is always working, you know, God is always moving, even when we don't see Him, etc. We say these things very easily, but we don't know exactly what we're saying many times. Romans eight twenty eight, one of the famous verses. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. How many believe that? That if you love God, if you are well-intentioned, if your heart is seeking the glory of God, everything that happens, even Satan's own desire to destroy you, will be turned by God in a direction for your good and your benefit and the benefit of his kingdom. Satan is condemned to fulfilling that prophecy. And we need to understand that God is always at work in my life. God is an intentional God. God is a detail-oriented God. My life is not ruled by inertia. My life is ruled by this deliberate God who is always acting on my behalf, even on the darkest moments, even in the most sinister moments of my life. And this principle, knowing that God is always at work, always working on our behalf, helps us when we're going through moments of crisis. We should always ask ourselves, when we're going through these moments, what is God trying to to accomplish through this negative experience of crisis. This is a question I always ask myself. God, why am I where I am? What am I doing in this cave? Why have I been been brought to the cave? Because I know that there's a reason, and uh, there's a purpose, even though it may seem totally pointless and demonically induced. But ultimately, it is God who is working. And we should always ask ourselves, whenever you're going through any situation in life, my brothers or sisters, always ask yourself, God, what can I learn? What are you trying to teach me? What spiritual lessons can I obtain from this moment? For God is indeed always working in our lives, teaching us, preparing us, pruning us, breaking us, shaping us, leading us to a new new understanding of who He is and of who we are. He's the ever-active God, always at work, never resting. Uh, uh, You know, as I've said, it it always, it, it seems clear that God was pruning Elijah, showing him a side of God that he hadn't often experienced, his loving, tender side. For Elijah only knew that other side of God, the severe, confrontative side, that God of thunder and lightning, of extraordinary interventions, of power and confrontation. That's the side he knew because his whole ministry was oriented toward that. He had been forced into a ministry of confrontation. He had been put into a moment in in the life of Israel where Israel was ruled by demonized, violent beings, Ahab and Jezebel. Demons ruled Israel, and, and, and God needed a demon slayer. And that's what Elijah was. He was the enforcer. But you know, sometimes uh, the powers of our, the experiences of our ministries have their own dark side. And that's the thing that God then, it's like a medicine. You take a medicine, but it has certain side effects. And sometimes you need to take another medicine to counter the side effects. And it's like that here. You know, God needs a forceful man, but then that forceful man is himself deformed by the nature of the ministry that he has been called to. And God now needs to minister to him to correct the deformations of uh, his ministry and I think this is what is happening here. And this is what will happen in your life as well. All the good things that God has given you, when they hit your humanity, they are deformed. And God also often needs to exercise some corrective measures to keep you even keel, to bring you back to the balance of Jesus Christ. God now needs to minister to this man whom he has used to be an enforcer. And, and you know, he needs him to rest. Elijah needs to reflect He needs to be fed by God. And this is another lesson that we can learn. You know, there are moments in our life and ministry where we have to stop serving others. If you're a mother, remember that. If you're a busy businessman or professional, remember that. If you are an essential worker, if you're a person who is in great demand and you are serving others, you need to take care of yourself in order to continue serving and to be more effective. There are times when we need to stop in order to continue and we need to sharpen the, uh, the axe in order to be more effective in cutting down trees. And I think this is, you know, Elijah is forced into a, a sabbatical. Uh, if we serve, we need to rest. That is a discipline that we need to force ourselves to do. Engage in it. It's necessary. We need to take time. This is not waste. It is something that we all need to do. Uh, in order to effectively minister to our families, or our church, we need to be healthy ourselves. We need to be in a perpetual state of self-renewal and growth. Otherwise, we grow stale and mechanical. That's the nature <clears throat> of every machine. Every machine deteriorates. Every piece of a machine wears out over with use. And we need to let the land rest. We need to take periodic times, just relaxation. Force yourself, even as your mind is saying, you're wasting time. You're, 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 the world is going to fall apart if you don't do something. Say to yourself, no. God is in control. I'm not irreplaceable. I need to take time. I need to help, let others help me as well. And I think the, all of these were lessons that you know, were Im- implicated in this thing. You know, so this idea of rest is important. Please keep that in mind always. Some of us are going through difficult times in our lives, not because we need to, but because simply we have brought ourselves to that point. And God is saying, hey, why, why are you so stressed? I'm not asking you to do it. And here we are, you know, asking God, God, help me, do this, do that. He says, hey, I, I'm, I'm here. I'm willing to help you. Just let me work. Don't, don't think that if you don't work, then somehow the world's going to fall apart. Your stress comes from unnecessary toil and labor. Keep the Sabbath. Trust me. That is what the Sabbath is, an act of faith. So, um, you know, uh, the other lesson that I think is at work here is this, that God shows Elijah not only that he has a tender side, but also that he moves not only in the spectacular and the sinister and the sort of, a, you know, llamativo, how should I say that, in that which calls attention to itself, um, he also works in the delicate soothing whispers of a light wind not only in the wind that tears apart the mountain or the violent earthquake or the consuming fire you see god is very deliberate why does he put why does he enact this drama stand before the in front of the cave elijah and then he take god takes the time to bring about a, a, a terrible f- forceful wind a fire an earthquake Because he wants to prepare Elijah for that final manifestation of himself, which is the very opposite of the three, which is what Elijah has always known, the the spectacular God. No, the the fourth uh, manifestation where God actually resides in this moment is in the soft wind. (sighs) Have you ever walked in a forest and uh, heard a breeze? It's the most delightful thing in the world. It brings peace to your soul. It's better than any symphony. Those moments quiet you. Elijah needed soft music. By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to a, a, a CD called Sleep. Check it out. It's a beautiful, beautiful, um, it's on you know, music, Apple music. It's 111 pieces of classical music that are very lovely, lovely, and, and, you know, these are great classics, but uh, just enriching, beautiful pieces for meditation and for quiet. And, um, you know, that's what Elijah needed. He needed, uh, he didn't need a a piece of music full of, you know, percussion and contrast and tensions. He needed something just not too complicated, but beautiful and melodic, melodious. That's what what he gives him, soft wind. Because when you are in stress, you don't need... uh, a lot of um, harsh, dramatic things. No, you need to quiet your soul. You need to let your nervous system rest. Don't, don't see a hor- horror movie if you're under stress, okay? Watch uh, something from, I don't know, Bambi. Watch something, you know, whatever it is, but don't, don't watch anything because it'll, it'll just make you worse. Don't read a novel, you know, some gothic novel or something like it. Read something where the good guy wins and, the, you know, he, he gets the girl and the bad guy is defeated. Just give yourself a break. Take time. And this is what he does, you know. He, he gives him this soft, and he says, Elijah, I'm not, just in the, I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm not just in the powerful manifestations. You know, sometimes Pentecostals, when they hear a pastor preach a sermon of um, the cross or you know, something oriented toward psychology or emotions, they think this guy is not anointed because they want to hear about, uh, you know, the powerful manifestations, the miracles. Pentecostals are often addicted to miracles. And in that, they reveal or we reveal our superficiality. Yes, I think miracles are wonderful. There's a moment for everything uh, our sermons and our teachings should be very diverse. It should include the whole gamut, the 360 degrees of the human spiritual experience. And there are times to preach about powerful manifestations. And then there are times to teach people about the, the judo of uh, the Christian life. They're all necessary. And so Elijah needs some of that. And so this is why I think God gives him this uh, soft wind. And um, he wants to show to him that he, he is not only in the... Uh, spectacular. And so, again, you know, he also wants to show Elijah that he is in control. Okay? He wants to show Elijah that everything that happens in our lives is originated by a God who is intent on filling the holes in our personality. God wants to perfect us as well as our understanding of him. He will often use negative experiences, even hostile individuals that want to destroy us and exploit our weakness, He wants to use all that, the devil himself, to break us and humble us, to make us more sensitive to his voice, to cut off the dead branches of our personality. He's using Jezebel and Ahab to train and disciple his prophet. But God is in control, and he wants to teach Elijah that. Now, how can we cooperate when God is working in in my life, your life, in these uh, sort of um, surgical sort of ways? How can we con- uh, cooperate? I'll say a couple of things. Number one, please realize that this w- way of God working is real. Okay? Know that God does work many times through toil, tribulation, trial, testing, crucifixion. This is a reality, and God works that way. Know that. Accept it and uh, join it. Number two, When you're going through moments when God is working in a very violent sort of way in your life, remain sensitive and alert when you're entering through these times of trial. And ask God to illuminate you, me, as to why He is proceeding in a certain way through a particular circumstance. Ask yourself, why am I here, God? Why am I in the cave? And what are you trying to teach me through this experience? Seek Seek revelation, seek illumination. And if you ask God, He will give you understanding. That's what the Bible says. Number three, we must also understand that we are continually in God's worship, in God's workshop, always. As you breathe, you are in His workshop. And that everything that happens in your life, my life, is because God is in control, not circumstances or people. We often, when we find ourselves under the gaze of the serpent, full of hatred, cold hatred, we tend to be fixated on the eyes of the serpent, and we have to fight like crazy to take our eyes of the serpent who will hypnotize us and turn it to this loving God who is more powerful than the serpent. You have to turn it to the Word. You have to pray. You have to worship. You have to, you know, stop being obfuscated and fixated on the serpent. That's what Satan wants you to do. When you're going through difficult times, he wants you to become so conscious of his work that you stop realizing that it is God, really, ultimately who is at work. And God, that God has, a, God has a purpose in what you are going through. Now, in the end, Elijah, and I'm, I'm wrapping here, up here. In, in the end, Elijah discovers, this is the final beautiful, dramatic lesson in this text, in this text. Elijah discovers that it is not Jezebel or Ahab who is in control, but God himself. You know, things are not as negative or hopeless as Elijah thought. He's not alone. He's not bereft of aid. It's not these demonic kings who are in control of history and of politics and of government. It is God who is in control. And how do we know this? Because you see at the end what happens. Elijah receives instruction from God to channel God's will by anointing the new king of Syria. Now Syria is, a, is a, an enemy nation. Syria has nothing to do with uh, the God of Elijah. And yet God says, my power, my influence, my governance are there. So you go and anoint and establish the new king of Syria, Hazael. God has the power to do that. You see, God installs kings, whether it is in America or Africa or Latin America or Russia or communist China. God has the power, not Satan, not men. He moves the the, the levers of uh, existence. He is never out of control. So he says, I have the power to determine who is going to lead Syria, a great enemy of Israel. So go and anoint the next political leader. Syria, and then go to Israel and anoint the man who will tear down the power of Ahab and Jezebel, Jehu, who was a fulminating, um, I mean, uh, violent man himself. Jehu was commissioned to exercise terrible influence upon Jezebel and and, uh, Ahab. God uses sometimes instruments that are like that. Read the life of Jehu. This man was, a, you know, he was uh, worse than David in his worst moments. This guy was uh, just uh, unremitting, just dedicated to God's uh, lethal mission. And he killed a lot of people. He wiped out a lot of things in the nation because it needed correction. These are demonized elements. And so God says, anoint Jehu to exercise my influence upon Israel. And then he says, "And as for you, your own ministry that you think has come to the end and that you're alone and you have no power, I want you to anoint Elisha as your replacement and your companion for the next few years of your life. You need, you need a friend. You need a buddy. You need a companion. You need a disciple to serve you. And then he will replace you when the moment comes, because I'm preparing your retirement as well. And so, you know, what we see here is this God who is dominant in every area, in the, the domain of the unbelievers, the domain of the, the so-called believers, Israel, and the domain of the servants of God. There's no place where God's power doesn't hold And this is a lesson that, you know, he wants Elijah to know and he wants you and I to also understand. Right now, we look at our land, our nation, and many of us are really anxious as to what is happening. We are, in my opinion, under the control of demonic forces that do not love the church, do not love the kingdom, do not know of God's moral laws, are governed by reason. They're well-intentioned, yes, but um, not biblically founded. They are cooperating with demonic forces. And our tendency, like Elijah, is to feel, God, where are you? And believe me, I know the complexity of these things that I'm speaking about. I know the complexity. I, the, the, I don't think that there's anything that I have not considered regarding where our nation is and where it has been before. But many feel that, you know, hey, where is God in all this? Why has He allowed certain things? You know, I've learned to be at peace. I sleep well knowing that God is in control. And His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. My part is simply to, to stay tethered to Him, see Him, focus on Him, pray Him into uh, influence, and be patient with His ways. They're, they're, they're beyond my pay grade. And sometimes God is working, you know, in complex sorts of ways. He's putting a piece here in order to be able to place another piece there. And then He's removing something here that is very valuable to us because He wants to fill that by something that is even more powerful. And that takes time. God is not in a hurry. God is an organic worker. He is into redeeming the entire universe, not just America, not just Boston, not just Washington. He's, he's he minds. He, he. Africa matters to Him. The Middle East matters to Him. The Muslim world matters to him. Europe matters to him. The poor of the world matter to him. He has a huge economy before him. And so I can't pretend to try to manipulate him into some simplistic intervention. He's too complex for that. My part is to trust in him, to keep myself focused on him, to make sure that I'm an agent of his will, and that I remain pliable and submitted. So there you have it. There's so much more to learn. I, I, I need to apply these lessons to my own life and to my own self. I need to remember this God who's so, so complex, elusive, but always in control. And when I, hear, when I feel the water coming up to my neck and even up to my mouth and feeling, God, where are you? He says, don't worry. I, you won't drown. I'll arrive in time. Relax. I just want to show you certain things. So wherever you are in your life at this moment you may feel that you know that there's no hope for you okay you may feel that your needs are too big that it is too late that uh, you know if God would have wanted to intervene he would have done it a million years ago and he hasn't so you you're going to give up do not give up God is at work God is using his mysterious tools to work in your life and to work in my life and Elijah is a work is a wonderful, wonderful um, ally in that journey. He, he, he's a teacher for us. Would you bow your head with me as I do it myself? <clears throat> if there's anything of value in, in what I have shared with you this morning, <clears throat> if there is anything that you can take with you to your home today, Acknowledge that, as I do right now, because I'm preaching to myself, by the way. I'm Elijah. Um, Let that word sink into your life. If you have been tempted to doubt God, as I have many times, would you right now acknowledge this miracle worker, this God who is always at work, even when you don't see him, who's deeply interested in not just extracting benefit from you he wants to invest in you You see even as you serve him he's always putting value into your life he wants you to know him better there's nothing else that god wants more than to be known by you and sometimes for you to know him truly he has to take out a lot of gunk in your life He, he has to Just uh, gouge out a lot of extraneous stuff, a lot of superficiality, in order to enable you to know who He truly is. And so welcome that work, even though it's sometimes difficult. I I hate it when God is uh, operating on me. I want to flee many times, but I've learned that that's the way He works. He crucifies us many times before bringing us into a resurrection. And he will always be doing that in your life. Young people, my eyes are led to a few young people right now here. Know that this is the journey that awaits you. It's a glorious journey. Don't be afraid of it. The surgeon who is going to be working in your life in the next 30, 40 years is a master. Whenever he surgically removes something from you that you think is uh, absolutely irreplaceable, he knows what he's doing. Don't worry. He'll, He'll replace it with something better. He will crush you. He will terrify you. He will put you against the wall many times. But he he's all about blessing you and bringing you to a greater glory, a greater understanding of who he is, a greater capacity to serve him and others. Know that whatever happens in your life, however God works in your life, it will be good. It will be good, even though the process itself may be harrowing, And terrifying nothing has been wasted God is the great recycler God is the expert in taking vile and uh, uh, mundane things and turning them into sublime sculptures and works of art he does not waste one single iota of energy nothing is wasted okay and you will understand that when you get to heaven when you see eternity from eternity and and you will understand as you are now being understood by God now we see through a dark glass one day we will see transparently, perfectly without limitations let's wait for that moment with great patience and thankfulness so Father take your word make it real within us give it life uh, decodify it within us download it into our being and give us understanding of your great great mysterious personality and way of working we thank you for your word that accompanies us through this journey because it is true and worthy of confidence bless my brothers and sisters who are in their own journeys today father if anybody has come this morning fearful depressed defeated Without solutions, baffled, puzzled, encased within their own situation, I pray that this morning your word will open a way, will show a solution, and fill them with hope that your future is good, and that you have a purpose in what we are experiencing. Thank you. Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you.